Hello and welcome to Devoted Devotions as we get into the sixth commandment in our Ten Commandments series, looking at the sanctity of life and the sovereignty of God. For those of you who are new, my name is Tandi and I hope you have a fruitful time with us and that the Holy Spirit may continue to bless you through the study that we are about to have. And at this moment, I'd like for us to close our eyes as we invite the Holy Spirit to join us. Our Heavenly Father, we submit our minds, our bodies, and our souls to you at this moment, asking that you might lead and guide us, Father. We ask that you might pour out your Holy Spirit so that at this time, it might take over. We set aside all of these things that so easily distract us, Father, and we want to submit to your will at this time. In your mighty name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. On the surface, the sixth commandment sounds very simple. Exodus 20, you shall not kill. Naturally, we'll explore this command in order to find more layers beyond the surface meaning, right? Because we could easily be like, okay, this is the easiest commandment to keep. But now, if this meant that no person is to kill another person, animal, or insect, then the Israelites would have violated this law. Especially when God was the one who sent them to kill their enemies. And there is also that dietary law to kill and eat animals designated as clean. Leviticus chapter 11. And we can't forget the animal sacrifices that took place during the Levitical priesthood. So, we will look at various aspects of killing. Which kind of killing is justified and unjustified according to scripture. We'll also go into sanctity of life and the sovereignty of God. So when we read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we are told that everything has a season. There is a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. Alright, so the word tells us that there is indeed a time to kill. Like we need to look deeply at this because we don't want to misinterpret or mishandle God's word. So let's hear what God has to say about this. And this is what he said about the enemies of Israel in Leviticus 18 verses 24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways which the people I drive out from before you have defiled themselves. Because the entire land has become defiled, I am punishing the people who live there and I will cause the land to vomit them out. First, let's remember that the people of Canaan were cursed long before they were destroyed and were driven out of the land. They were cursed back in Genesis 9 verses 25. Remember when um, Noah cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. He said, may Canaan be cursed and may he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. So this is why they were eventually driven out or vomited from the land. Because God had marked the Canaanites for death long before they were destroyed by Israel. 
So let's look at um, Genesis chapter 15, verses 14 to 16. And also this nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at, an, at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is a very profound statement because it kind of gives us a sneak peek into the way that God works. He doesn't just destroy people willy-nilly. There is a method. There is a reason. There is a law broken. The Amorites was another name for the people who lived in the land of Canaan and um, the surrounding territories. Their iniquity was not yet complete, meaning that they had not yet fully corrupted themselves before God found it necessary to destroy them outright. And that destruction would come to them at the hands of Israel. Remember, God often used one nation to judge or destroy another. In Sodom and Gomorrah, he did not do this, though. The sins of those wicked cities reached up to God, and he dealt with them accordingly by destroying them. He didn't use another nation to destroy them, right? And there is a lesson here about the God that we serve being a God of love and a God of judgment. Because we tend to only focus on his loving traits and forget that God is also a God of order. His creation is evidence of this. The sun rises during the day and the moon at night. An apple tree gives forth apples and dogs bear dogs. There is no disorder or confusion in nature, right? But yet humans are the only species that want to bring chaos. Before God sends his judgment... He offers mercy, he offers salvation, and he offers a way of escape. We actually see this from the first time God's wrath is unleashed on the earth in the time of Noah. The people had 120 years to repent, or even not even repent. All they had to do was get in the boat, get on the ark but they chose not to. And before God even destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he was willing to spare it if there were lives that could be saved. In fact, the angels that went there were actually looking to see if they could find any righteous people in the city. Um, read the conversation that uh, the angels have with Abraham before these cities were destroyed in Genesis 18. This is basically an example of intercession in action. This is what Jesus is doing in heaven on our behalf, basically. So basically, this time before one has fully corrupted themselves should be used to repent, to turn to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is offering us a way to escape the coming judgment. This account in Genesis 18 gives us two things that we're going to look at. One being 
As stated, God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Even in his fiercest judgments, the destruction of entire cities, it just doesn't happen. He does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Two, being that there were not even 10 righteous souls left in these cities, which is why he had to remove the few who were there so that the cities could be destroyed. Genesis 19 verses 15. At dawn the next morning, the heavenly messengers became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. Ooh, can you imagine if Lot and his family didn't listen to this warning? That would have been extremely tragic. Let's thank the Lord that they were actually obedient in the one time they it really called for it. Okay, so this kind of sin and wickedness is what warrants God's wrath and punishment. And the same can be said of other nations that were destroyed by other nations for their sheer wickedness. Another example is Rahab being saved from the destruction of the of Jericho um, for sparing the two lives of the spies. God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. So in Exodus 32 verses 25 to 28. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame. Then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together with him and said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go out from the entrance and throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men fell that day. Okay, so this is after the, the bull was constructed, when they had created an idol of themselves, just after the Red Sea. And we see here that before this instruction to kill is given, there is a sorting there is a separation that is done. Moses says, let those who are on the Lord's side come to me. And I pray at this moment that the person listening to this is listening out for that voice that is saying, let those who are off the Lord's side come to me. If the Lord is calling you to move, if the Lord is calling you to leave a place, I implore you to listen to that voice because it could save you from coming destruction. And so the, the actual chapter is very interesting. I encourage you to read it. But as you know, I can't read the entire chapter because we get through a lot in these episodes. And so basically this act of killing is completely justified in the eyes of God. They have completely defiled themselves 
just after God had displayed his power by opening and splitting the Red Sea. I mean, I can't even imagine how disrespectful that is. And, you know, even after the event, Moses actually felt so bad that he took the matter to God, um, asking to seek for forgiveness, right? Um, this is in verses 30 to 35. It says, Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of, the, out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, Lead the people to the place which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. The killing of various blasphemous Israelites at the hands of the Levites was not attributed as sin. The killing was in fact counted as just and deserving judgment. Remember, Moses had killed an Egyptian before he was called to lead Israel. And we can gather that the killing was not premeditated, but accidental. And the law makes provision for such cases. In Exodus 21 verses 12, this is with regard to the place of refuge. You can also look at um, Exodus 2 verses 15. Acts 7 verses 30 tells us that Moses was in the land of refuge for 40 long years. Now, when we continue to isolate some of the points and narrow the focus from national killing to localized killing, then we get this additional account. Exodus 22 um, verses 2 to 3. Not only does the law make it plain, that one kind of killing is justified in the eyes of God, but also that night and day are indeed separate. A thief stealing during the day cannot be killed in a justified manner, unlike a thief caught stealing at night. One very important thing to note is the accounts of killing such as thieves, cities, nations, or wicked people, and even the slaughter of sacrificial animals are given to show us that the sole purpose of these sanctioned killings was to rid the land of evil. Otherwise, it was not lawful to kill. The preceding information is given to shed light on what is justified and unjustified in the eyes of God regarding, to, regarding killing, right? But the law itself was given to the nation of Israel. To us, this law pertains to us in a different way, basically, because we are in captivity. We are no longer a nation under God's sovereign law. In Leviticus 19 verses 17, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. 
this verse might sound really random like what does that have to do with anything why are you talking about hate when we're talking about killing but jesus christ our redeemer and our savior our king and our creator connects this with the sixth commandment he basically defines the sixth commandment in our time matthew 5 verses 21 to 22 you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. One could easily miss the connection and even the definition of the law, you shall not kill in Jesus' statement here. It's simple. To be angry in your heart with your fellow Israelite or your fellow, air quotes, neighbor without cause leaves you just as guilty as the actual premeditated killing of a human being. When you look at this even closer, you see how hatred turns into murder. We see this with Cain and Abel. We also see this with Jacob and Esau in Genesis 27 verses 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. John expands on this idea in 1 John 3 verses 14. It says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brethren abides in death, and whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is also what the sixth commandment is driving at when it tells us not to kill. Are you guys catching it? The law is giving us the effect or the result. In Christianese, we would say it, it would show us the fruit of the flesh. And Jesus tells us the cause. Where this kind of result stems from. He's telling us how it begins. Jesus gives us insight with regards to where murder starts. And so this commandment might seem like the easiest one to keep because even a thief can draw a line at like murder, right? So are we really in the clear? No. The wisest man on earth warned us that above all else, we should guard our hearts because everything we do flows from it. So what does this have to do with murder? When Jesus spoke, he revealed that this commandment deals with more than just the physical act of murder. He brought it back to the thoughts and intents. In other words, the, the heart condition. Yes, we know that there's a difference between hating someone and actually murdering someone. Because obviously people don't go to jail for being haters, right? Even though I think that might be a good idea, but <laughs> that's just me. 
on its own, hating someone has never robbed a family member of their loved ones. But in God's eyes, he has made it abundantly clear that the emotion of hatred and murder are on the same level. Why? Because of what happens in the heart. Everything we do flows from it. Our thinking, our hatred is the seed which murder grows from. And so externally, yes, these things are completely different. But internally, they are exactly the same thing. Murder stems from hatred. And hatred is a poison that will consume you from the inside out. And so you cannot love God in a heart filled with hatred. Our hatred towards our neighbors here on earth has the potential to strip us from a relationship with God. He cannot live in a heart filled with hate. And so when we introspect and we find hate in our hearts towards someone else, then you need to plead with the Lord to help you remove it. The Holy Spirit will teach you how to love that person so that there is no iniquity found in you. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who despitefully use you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. We naturally want to respond to hatred with hatred, but Christ is showing us a way of escape. He's showing us that we don't actually have to fall into that cycle of death. We've been liberated from it. We've been given the cheat codes. Just because we have never murdered someone, it does not mean that this commandment has nothing to teach us. Murder is wrong because people matter to God. Human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God. Psalms 139 verses 13 to 14 says, You are all made delicate, the inner parts of my body, and knit together in my mother's womb. And so I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now indulge me for a second. You know that verse that says, um, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted? I would even go as far as to say that the Lord is very near to pregnant women. And I say this because he is directly involved in the process of turning the blastocyst into an embryo and an embryo into a fetus and that fetus into a baby. In fact, there's even a law that protects pregnant women. I'm sure you guys would probably be really shocked, but I was shocked too. This law says that if a pregnant woman is harmed and her fruit or the fruit of her womb, the baby, departs from her, then that person can be put to death. It's actually where the saying, an eye for an eye comes from. Go and read Exodus 21 verses 22 to 25. This just shows just how precious a pregnant woman is in the eyes of God. 
and if you ever have time i'd recommend watching the videos on how complex like the human body is you can look at specific parts of the body like the eyes the ears the heart or even like as a system like the nervous system the digestive system any system because the more you learn you start to see just how intricately we were designed and the more you just have to accept that we are not here by accident we are indeed created beings it's quite interesting in hebrew there are about eight different words yeah i think it's eight eight different words for murder and the word that god uses in the sixth commandment refers to the taking of an innocent life so this is not about defending yourself or warfare this commandment not only prohibits violent acts of murder but it also prohibits the violent intentions of the heart the 10 commandments demonstrate that our sin problem goes so much deeper than we think and so before we go on i think it is important to actually talk about the heart we've spoken about the heart condition in previous episodes but what is the heart what is it the dictionary defines it as like an organ that pumps blood to the entire body and okay yes this is true when the scriptures use the word it speaks to more than just a biological pump The scriptures describe the heart as the center of one's total personality relating to intuition, feeling and motives. Even medical scientists are starting to catch up with this concept that the heart actually influences behavior, reason and emotions because this became apparent when doctors would perform uh a heart transplants and the patients would experience changes in their personalities or they even feel like another person is living inside them the evidence that the heart is the seat of the emotional makeup of man is growing and yeah this might be a surprise to modern scientists but not to people who take the bible literally and not as a figure of speech in scripture the heart can be used to describe our spirit or our courage or even enthusiasm god declares that he has the power to write on the heart as if it were a tablet could this be an allegory or a figure of speech or should we take god at his word and take this literally Now before you reject this idea just think about how man understands that the body has a language that is in the blood this language is called DNA medical scientists have been very interested in the various ways that they can rewrite or resequence a man's DNA and by doing so change the physical condition of said man there are countless articles that speak on this about how many diseases can be cured by rewriting dna in the bloodstream some sort of dna code can be introduced then copied by the person's own dna this is all connected to the blood of man and the heart that pumps it through the body i don't know it's really complicated but 
All I know is that the scriptures have declared that life is in the blood. And without the heart, that life cannot be sustained. I don't know much about genetics and biology, but I do think that the entire concept is incredibly fascinating. All the information that DNA contains. Blood can tell you so much about its host. It can tell you gender. It can tell you the diseases that that person is carrying. It can tell you how mobile and how active that person was. It can tell you even if that person is in pain. And we actually see the importance of blood throughout the scriptures. All the sacrifices could not have been done without blood. And I can even go on a tangent just on this about the significance of Christ's blood being shed. But of course, that is a different topic. I also thought that it was interesting that the word for heart is represented by two Hebrew letters, Lamed and Bet. These are two letters. Lamed is pictured as a, a staff, right? An instrument of authority. And Bet represents a tent. More specifically, what is inside the tent. So even the pictograph of the word expresses that the heart is the thing that leads the tent or that leads your body, you know. But that being said, it's so scary to me how people are so far from the source of life, so far from God to the degree that they think that their feelings are more important than God's will. We really do not believe in the sovereignty of God if we think that there are some cases where our own will is more important than God's will. It's like, oh yeah, God is sovereign, but I think I'm going to make decisions about what's best for me in this area of my life. Guys, that's the devil himself who speaks like that. It's the spirit behind this, I will set my stars above the stars of God. I will be like God. It's that kind of language. Guys, it's either you believe God is sovereign or not. There is no middle ground. And so we have looked at the law as it relates to God. And we have looked at the law as Jesus presented it to us. And we have looked at the heart condition that comes with breaking this law. And right now we're going to look at the sanctity of life. And as much as I was kind of reluctant to speak on this, I thought that this episode would lead into the direction of the words that we speak, how we can speak life and death and this power in the tongue um, and being careful on the way we speak to people as to not destroy them, as to not tear them down. But it was apparent to me that God was leading me to address this topic. And as much as I was reluctant to speak on it, it has to be addressed and I have to be obedient to his word. And I'm not speaking on this because I have the answers or anything, but there is light that needs to be shed on this topic so that we can see just a glimpse of the spiritual warfare that is taking place right now and begin to put on the full armor of God.
Okay, so this is not a new spiritual law, but it's a very old one that goes back all the way to the garden. And I know I always go back to this, but there's just so much we can learn from that. This war was the war that was declared by God himself. After Adam had broken the command to not eat the fruit, this is when he was cursed. Humankind was cursed. The man was cursed. The woman was cursed. But God also cursed the serpent. And this curse is very pivotal as it relates to the issue we're about to discuss. Genesis 3 verses 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or offspring and her seed or offspring. It will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. This is a very profound statement. And you need to understand that at this moment, when God shows up, Adam and Eve run away because they think that they are going to die immediately. And what happens is God says, yes, you're going to die, but not now. And you realize that in him even doing that, he was showing mercy. Because obviously God's deportment is mercy. He sits on the mercy seat. So God shows up in the garden. And he says, yes, you're going to die, but you're not going to die now. And it's going to be your offspring. And this, this death is going to last generations. And take note that the serpent, unlike us, takes God at his word. The serpent believes God completely and precisely. God declared that there would be enmity between the two seeds. And in the very next chapter, you have the first murder. And it's the seed of the serpent, Cain, killing the seed of the woman, Abel. Now, why is Cain the seed of the serpent? Okay, that's what the Bible actually calls him in 1 John 3 verses 11 to 12. It reads as follows. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. And you should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Cain was of the evil one. The serpent took God at his word. He believed God when he said that he would be crushed. The seed of the woman was going to finish him. He was going to bruise his heel. He was going to harm him. But the seed of the woman is not just going to harm him. He's going to crush him. He's going to destroy him. And the next chapter, we see that God gives another seed, Seth. So the seed of the woman has been restored. And the chapter after that, we're shown the 10 generations from Adam to Noah. But the serpent still takes God literally. The serpent wants to destroy the promised seed before the promised seed destroys him. And basically the rest of the Bible traces this war between the serpent and the seed. In the very next book of the Bible, 
we see in the first chapter, we see the king of Egypt. It says he spoke to the Hebrew midwives and he says, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Why? Because the serpent takes God literally. He knows that every word is important. And God said he. He specifically targets the male children from this specific line. He believed that from this godly line, a male child would be born that would destroy him. And so he had to try and destroy them before that this could happen. And even in the New Testament, Herod sends wise men to go find Jesus, right? So that he too can worship him. And then when he realizes that he's been bamboozled, he's not going to get the information about this particular child from this particular line. He orders every single male child within that age group to be slaughtered. You can read this in Matthew chapter 2. And when we read this account, we tend to gloss over it. We gloss over the fact that Thousands of babies were murdered. And I'm not really surprised because when we look around in our society today, we also turn a blind eye to the millions of babies being slaughtered in the womb. Because we don't see it. Guys, this is spiritual warfare. This is what we are dealing with it's evil it is wickedness to the core you know my heart really broke when i saw how many people were um unhappy because less than three thousand babies were going to be slaughtered this is honestly spiritual wickedness in high high places from the first to the last book, we see this war between the serpent and the seed. In Revelations chapter 12, 3 to 4, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great and fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And his tail grew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And so the war continues. The question is now, if the serpent knew the promised seed was coming and that it would come anyway, and that it came anyway, and that it triumphed over him at and through the cross, as Paul tells us in Colossians, then shouldn't this spiritual war be over? Shouldn't Satan just acknowledge that it's too late 
I guess in that aspect, maybe he's like us and how we believe that because um, judgment is taking so long, it's never going to happen. But the main reason this spiritual war is still taking place is because every single abortion is an attack against God himself. The slaughter of human beings is like slaughtering God in effigy. It is an attack on the very image of God. It is an attack on the cultural mandate and an attack on the gospel. How is it an attack on God? God made man in his image. And so it also violates the sixth commandment, which we have been given because we are indeed image bearers. It also usurps the role of God as the author of life. The fruit of the womb is a reward from God himself. And to attack that, to kill that, is almost like shaking your fist at God and saying, you don't get to be the author of life this time. And how is it an attack on the cultural mandate? We were commanded to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. This is repeated so many times in the book of Genesis. It's actually the first command we were given, if you think about it. This is basically what we have been mandated to do. And this, this instruction is not just about having children, but it's about bringing them up in the instruction of the Lord and spreading the order that was in the garden to the rest of the world, subduing the rest of the earth. And so how is it an attack on the gospel? This negates the fruit of a healthy husband-wife relationship that we were shown in Ephesians chapter 5. That one flesh union that God gives to husbands and wives is the physical, emotional, and spiritual union, which is all packaged and put together and is manifested as the child. The fruit of that healthy union is the children that are born to and through that union. And abortion is an assault on that. In Satan's mind, this actually minimizes Christ's full reward. How does it do that? Because it is the destruction of potential adopted sons. If you read Romans 8, 14 and 15 and Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about us being adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. Every child is a potential heir to the kingdom of God. So then, how do we think through this issue? How do we operate as people in the midst of this war? How do we fight as people in this war? 
I know we don't like war language because we're very docile, but seriously, I don't know how you read the Bible because the Bible is full of war language. And look guys, please don't hate because I don't write the mail, I'm just delivering it. What do we actually do? See, we need a theological understanding of the sanctity of life. This will basically form the foundation we have to navigate around this issue, especially in these times that we're in. Because though we engage in this war, our weapons are not of the flesh. And so when we think about these situations, 2 Corinthians 10 verses 5, we need to destroy every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God. And secondly, we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. This means Bible-based understanding of the sanctity of life. And that thought needs to obey Christ. This is not motivated by our feelings. This is not motivated by injustice or anything. This is motivated by the sovereignty of God and the sanctity of life. And those thoughts, the way we navigate through this needs to be captive and needs to obey Christ. So we need to familiarize ourselves with the word of God because we need to destroy these arguments on the one hand and opinions that raise itself against the knowledge of God. And on the other hand, in our own minds, we need to take the thoughts captive all right we need to take our own thoughts captive to obey christ and you know while i was researching for this topic i saw a statistic that really really hurt me seven out of ten women who have had an abortion identify as christian and if you would have asked them before this took place they would have also told you about the sanctity of life but the moment they saw the plus sign all of that just goes out the window. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Galatians 4 verses 4 to 6. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, and God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay, so this text reveals the sanctity of human life. Christ sanctified human life. How did he do it? How does Christ sanctify human life? Guys, just think about it for a second. God, the creator of heavens and the earth, the sea and land and everything in it, could have sent Jesus to earth in any way that he chose. Remember, he is sovereign. He does whatever pleases him. And yet, when he sends forth his son... He chose to have him born of a woman. Christ is fully divine. 
and fully human. So in Christ, we know what full humanity means. Therefore, in Christ, we know that full humanity includes life in the womb because he enters humanity as an embryo. Verse 5 talks about being made under the law to redeem those born of the law that we might have um, that we might receive adoption. He is born to keep the law and then die for the law that we broke so that we might be redeemed. There is a debt that we owe because of our sin. And I understand that there are so many reasons to justify the act. In fact, there are many excuses to justify this act. Reasons and excuses that we tend not to know how to respond to whenever we're presented with these arguments. One of them being that no parent wants their kid to suffer. And so the most merciful thing that they can do is to end that baby's life in order to end their suffering especially if the doctors told you that they would suffer their whole life. My dear friend, if God himself thought like that, then he would not have sent his own son to die on that cross. We see the sanctity of life, the sanctity of human life, even if it is destined for suffering. Another argument that's made is that it's okay because there are cases of rape and incest. In other words, if your father is a certain kind of sinner, then it's okay to kill you. Guys, children do not deserve to die because of what their biological fathers did. The sanctity of life, regardless of circumstance, must be preserved. Christ himself demonstrated to us that human life is sacred from the moment of conception. Regardless of how long it's going to be or how much suffering we have to endure, regardless of how sinful it is, it is sacred. Remember, we must take every thought captive to obey Christ. And this is so crucial because in these conversations, you will see people raise every single excuse under the sun to justify this act. And even if you had all the biblically accurate responses, you must understand that these people do not care about this. And you need to understand what that spirit is, is, is trying to do. The spirit behind these narratives is arguing for unlimited and unrestricted human autonomy. The human must decide what happens. Remember, we need to take these thoughts captive to obey Christ. Understand that they will use any argument as a placeholder for that. Why? Because this is spiritual warfare. People are engaging in this because 
Their deeds are evil and they love darkness rather than light. They engage in this because the devil is real. They engage in this because there is a battle between the serpent and the seed. And this has been going on since the beginning of time. The enemy hates God and he hates his image. And he is at war with the image of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Another argument we hear is, my body, my choice. Oh, how mistaken we are. Don't you know that your body is the temple of Christ? You do not own your body. It is not yours. You cannot even change your eye color. It does not belong to you. And every time we pray, we submit our minds, we submit our hearts, and we submit our bodies to the Most High God because He is the owner of it. And so how can you submit your body to Christ and yet you insist on making your own decisions? Do you see how that doesn't equate, guys? Take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's impossible for me to say I am obeying Christ while I am doing the complete opposite. While I'm acting as the seed of Satan in the spiritual war. And I know that because this lens is seen as more of a political issue, it is much easier to go based on your feelings. And that's why I'm trying to speak on the fact that this is not a political issue. This is spiritual warfare. We need to look at the sanctity of life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We need to start speaking about these things as children of the most high. We can no longer be silent. We can no longer be hush-hush about these issues. The world needs to hear the truth. Women are making irreversible mistakes out of fear and we need to encourage them. We cannot take the light that we have been given and hide it. Your children, our brothers, our sisters need guidance, especially on these difficult problems. Because they don't know what to do. Because no one is talking about it. But you know who is talking about it? The devil and his messengers. And they are loud. They never hesitate to spread the message of death. So why do we hesitate when it comes to spreading the message of life? And saying, please understand that saying it's wrong is not enough. People need to understand the spiritual battle first. We really need to make it a priority to proclaim the person and the work of Jesus Christ to this lost, hurt, dying and sinful world that is so desperately in need of repentance, faith, justification and adoption. Because of his finished work on the cross, where the serpent did bruise his heel, but he indeed crushed the serpent's head to the glory of God the Father.
our Heavenly Father. Help us, O Lord. As the world pulls us one direction while your word pulls us the other. Our flesh wants to follow the world, but our spirit wants to follow you. And you have told us that there is a way that seems right unto man, but that way leads to death and destruction. And you have also told us that there is a narrow way and there's a wide way. And few find that narrow way, Father. And Father, as we listen to this, we pray that we might find this narrow way, Father. That we might not be agents spreading the message of death. But that we might be disciples spreading the gospel of life and truth. Lead us, Father. We need you now more than ever. Equip us, Father, with your full armor so that the enemy may not do with us as he pleases. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. And I do want to say before we end off, if you have made this decision and you are still alive, you still have time. We spoke on that period of time that God gives as mercy. He gives you time to repent. Recognize that you have sinned against God. But it is not the end because you still have time to fall at the feet of Jesus. Repent and believe in him. Invite the Holy Spirit to direct your steps from this day on so that you will not sin against God. Invite Christ's blood to be the one that cleanses you. This is not a message of condemnation, but a message of hope. If you are facing this decision at this point, I hope you see the value of submitting your body to Christ, of submitting your life to Christ and letting God decide what happens. I implore you to not play God in your life. If you have learned something new, please share it with a friend or two. Anyways, from your host Tandy, thank you for listening and stay blessed.